Welcome to Your Family Dog, a podcast dedicated to helping families love living with dogs. Welcome back to the Your Family Dog podcast. I'm Tina Spring, and I'm joined today by my smart and pretty co-host, Julie Fudge-Smith. And today we're going to talk about how parents and caregivers can help support our dogs and our children and ourselves in being more successful together. And so, as is typical, I introduced the episode, and so Julie will make the first set of comments. All right. Well, thank you, Tina. Um, and thank you for coming up with this topic. Tina and I were once again talking about what are, we, what are we going to talk about? And when she mentioned this one, she said something about both our children and our dogs need support. And I said, that's it. That's what I want to talk about. So what do we mean by support? What we're talking about is the fact that we understand that life can be hectic and it can be hard and it can be overwhelming sometimes to feel like I am constantly supervising myself and supervising my kids and supervising my dogs. And and how do I do this? How do I do this effectively to make sure that things don't escalate in directions that we don't want them to go? How do we support our kids? How do we support our dogs? And how do I support myself so that I can manage my life in a way that's a little bit more effective? Jen Shryock, who's been on several times on Your Family Dog and has this wonderful family pause community where you can get a lot of great information on kids and dogs and supporting. And we've talked about this particular handout, her five types of supervision. And one of the things that she talks about here is the difference between absent, passive, reactive, proactive, and active supervision, which is sort of the essence of support. She also talks about success stations, which I think is a great way of looking at support. How can we set it up so that my kids and my dogs and I can be together in a way that works really well for all of us. And so she talks about support stations. And what she talks about is is using crates and gates and tethers. So one of the things that you can do is if your kids want to play, for example, a board game on the floor, you can tether the dog in the same room with you and the kids and give him a, a nice bed to lay down and a Kong to work on or another intelligence toy that he has to sort of chew on or a stuffed water buffalo horn. So the dog can be there and has something to do that keeps him happy and occupied while the kids are happy and occupied playing a game. The other thing you can do is you can put your dog, if you cannot actively supervise your kids and dogs, then put the dog behind a gate that the kids can't get through or in a crate or maybe outside to do something so that you are supporting the dog by not allowing kids to overwhelm the dog perhaps when he is sleeping and to support the kids so that the dog doesn't walk through the middle of their game and get them all mad. So I think there's a lot of things that we can do that will support an environment where everyone is successful, which is what we're really talking about. We're trying to set it up so that everybody in the family feels successful and that nobody feels as if the burden always lies on me to fix everything. So Tina, what do you have to say to that? So I think often it does feel like the burden all falls to mom or to dad or to grandma or whomever. I think the the primary reason that happens is because we tend to be a little bit reactive. So I don't know about you. I am not always highly organized. I rarely have a to-do list that is finished. And often I'm just, I feel a little bit like I'm playing whack-a-mole 
with my responsibilities and the things I need to take care of. I think this exact same thing happens with parents. Absolutely. I would agree with you 100% on that one. Right. And also what support I need is a moving target. What support my dog needs is a moving target. What support my kids or grandkids need is also a moving target. So setting aside a little bit of time to say, okay, when my child is trying to do homework, what should my dog be doing? One, to support the child in not being distracted and getting that that homework done, but also that the dog isn't chewing on a cord somewhere or barking out the window or, I don't know, having an accident in the living room. So I think often because we're in a hurry and we're pulled in so many directions, there's a little bit of failing to plan. And if you don't have a plan, it's not going to happen. Part of what instigated us doing this episode right now is I have three brand new dog bite to children cases on my service. In all three of the cases, there wasn't an adult in the room. So yes, I trust that the description of what the information the child is giving us is accurate from that child's perspective. Both the child in question and the dog in question needed advocacy in that moment, right? The dog was doing the best the dog could do. The child was doing the best the child could do. And a parent was doing the best they could do, but they weren't even in the room. So most of those situations, had an adult been in the room monitoring what was going on, we might have said, hey, Timmy, leave Rufus alone while he's chewing on his bony. Or we might have recognized that our child was getting fatigued and maybe wasn't handling the dog as gently as the sensitive dog would like to be handled. Or maybe, you know, somebody's fussing at somebody else. So in each of those cases, we're not going to have a crystal clear idea of what happened. We know what went wrong and it becomes really dangerous. None of these children are permanently damaged, right? Like we're not talking about some big excessive thing, but it was scary and it probably didn't need to happen. Right. Well, that also brings me to the idea of trauma. Trauma can happen even with things that we think are very small. It could be far more traumatic for this dog or for this child than the minor injury may indicate. And there's no need for anybody to have that kind of trauma. The other thing I think it does is it fuels a certain level of distrust and fear between the child and the dog. It damages their relationship, even if it hasn't caused physical damage. And we don't want that to happen either. We really want our kids to have a positive relationship with their dog. And we want the dog to feel like kids in my life are a good thing. So I think you're right that it might have been very different had the parents been there. But on the other hand, sometimes... You're there and stuff happens too. And I feel sorry for the parents who were trying their best who may even have been there because things can happen very quickly. Your chances of being able to respond appropriately are much better if you're actually there, though, than they are if you're not in the room. So I think you're right. Having a plan is really important. And that depends a lot on the age of the child and the age of the dog. You're right. These are moving targets. The way I manage a six-month-old puppy is going to be a bit different than the way I manage a six-year-old dog because they had different needs in their life. Well, and the way I'm going to handle a dog who's more sensitive or more 
about anything, about having their feet touched or about space or a dog who's losing his hearing and maybe is having a bigger startle. Or honestly, as simple as did we all go hiking and biking all weekend and now it's Monday morning or Sunday night and the dog, the kid, everybody's just a little bit overtired and a little a little bit worn out with one another. Yes. Boy, that can happen, can it? <laughs> no, only in my house. And believe me, when, when I was an active parent with kids in the house, this was just as difficult for me as it is for you, right? We had rules. Dogs aren't in the bedroom with you. They're just not. The dogs are in the main living part of the house. We had an open floor plan. So that meant that that was visible to me. And if you needed me, I was going to be in the kitchen. That's pretty much where I was going to be. So I could actively supervise. If I was going to go outside to poop scoop the yard, the dogs were going to come with me. Now, the children might choose to come with me and play in the backyard at the same time. That's great. But the dogs were going to come with me. If I was going to go out in the front yard and chat with my neighbor across the street, the dogs were either going to be crated or they were going to be put in the fenced backyard. The back door was going to be latched and the children knew, do not go in the backyard, do not open the door. If you need something, come to me. Even if the dogs are asking to come in, come and talk to me and I'll come take care of the dogs. And that's not to say that my children weren't learning how to be responsible for the dogs. I was managing where potentially a child was going to get knocked down or jumped on, or my dogs were going to learn to be goofballs. I'm not going to open a door that a dog is jumping on. A child is likely to feel a lot of urgency when a dog is jumping on the door. Well, I don't want those two things to collide, literally or figuratively. Right. Right. And I think one of the things that we have to realize is that while we are teaching our children responsible behavior towards dogs, we still have to be the primary caregiver for both the dogs and for the kids. And that the way in which they learn this responsibility is by us showing them, this is how you manage a dog in this situation. And, you know, talking to them saying, hey, the reason why I don't want you to unlock the door is because the dogs can be really goofy and I don't want one of them to hurt you. And I don't want you to get in the way of something that is not necessary. So I think that you're absolutely right. We can teach our kids responsibility and how to care for and be you know, reasonable around dogs. We're still the adults, and we still have to be the ones who are fully responsible for the management of both the kids and the dogs. Well, so at the time, I was a foster parent, and if I was going to have to fill out an incident report, I needed to be able to do that, which meant I needed to supervise. So I did a lot of really simplifying things. So, for example, if I was going to have the children help me feed the dogs, the way that that was going to look was that the dogs were going to be managed first. And then a, a child was going to be delivering the food with me right there with them, helping them read like, okay, if we open that crate door to give the dog his stuffed frozen Kong to eat his dinner, does that dog have his marbles in his head or does he look like he's still being goofy? And if we opened the crate door, what do we think might happen? Well, you know, Bugsy might bounce out of the crate door and knock us down and that would feel awful. So did it take a lot of time? Yeah. And if I didn't have the bandwidth to deal with it, I was just like, hey, you guys go play in the front yard. I'm going to feed the dogs. Right. <laughs> like that, was, that was way easier. 
That's right. Teaching moments come in all kinds of ways. Teaching moments can also be, you know, hey, I do want you to help me feed the dogs. Today's not a good day for that. Let's do it tomorrow or another day. I think it's perfectly reasonable to say, yes, I want to teach you this. I can't do it right now for whatever reason. Well, and and kiddos are monkey see, monkey do, right? So if I'm in a hurry and I'm going to be a little bit slapdash about that, like if I'm going to be a little bit messy in my execution because I'm an adult and know my dogs very well and they mind me pretty well and all that stuff, I can be a little bit messy about my skill set with that and because we're in a hurry or whatever, we got to go to the dentist. But I don't want my children to observe that. And I don't want my children involved in that with the dogs learning how to be messy with them. I'm not willing to make that bargain. The same way that when my grandmother was elderly, I didn't want the dogs being goofballs around her either because I don't want them to learn that it's okay to knock Grandma St. Mary down. So I think sometimes parents need permission to say, no, the dog's not going to be with you. The dog's doing something else. Oh, I love that. If you're going to play with bubble soap and you're going to run around shrieking, having the Jack Russell Terrier in the middle of that or the Labrador Retriever that weighs 90 pounds, who's still a teenager and doesn't have a bunch of impulse control, that's going to end badly. So it's not that the kids can't play with the bubble soap. I want them to play with the bubble soap. I just don't want the dog in the middle of that mix because there's too much chaos. I agree. There's too much chance that the child and the dog are going to get it wrong. Absolutely. And the other thing is, I will talk to to my grandkids, you know, you don't always want to spend time with your brother. Sometimes you just want to be by yourself in your room reading your book and you don't really want to be pestered. Dogs are like that, too. There are times when when Zuzu really wants to play in the yard with you and you have a great time and it's quite successful. There are other times when she has taken herself off to my office, right? She's basically saying the same thing you are when you say, I want to read my book. Zuzu's like, I need to take a break. And so I think it's important for kids to understand that sometimes parents do do know what's best both for them and for their dog. And that some time together is great, time apart is great. And just like my kids would have individual time with me, sometimes my dog needs individual time with me too. And I need to take a little bit of a break with my dog. The other thing I wanted to say is, is all the stuff we're talking about, supervising kids and dogs and not letting a crazed dog out of his crate can also apply to dog to dog supervision as well. Because I don't necessarily have my dogs together when I leave. What I usually find is that if I'm going to be leaving for a while, I don't necessarily need these two hooligans to be helping each other to greater levels of hooliganism. If they are separate, they're more likely to calm down. So the same thing can work with your dog to dog support as well. Sometimes, especially if you have an older dog and a puppy, the older dog may not always want to be gnawed on by the puppy. And it's okay to support both of those dogs. So I think the stuff that you're talking about, Tina, is great for kids and dogs, but I think it also applies for dog to dogs. And I think owners that don't have kids need to understand that they can support their dogs in much the same way. Yes. So sometimes I think a little bit of, okay, would I leave my daughter's guinea pig and a Malamute in the same room together? Even if the guinea pig was in some sort of... My answer would be no. So when I'm talking to 
families about this. We talk about backing up kind of where the boundaries are, what the criteria are to give us more slack in the system so that when somebody blows it, either the dog, the child, or myself, there's still a much larger margin of safety. The example I typically use is when your child is learning how to ride a big wheel or a tricycle or a bike, and they're maybe playing in the driveway, we don't tell them to stop at the edge of the road. We tell them to stop at some sort of visual indicator that's a pretty significant distance usually from the road. In this case, I'm going to say don't go past the lamppost or don't go past the shrub. In a case where you don't have that stuff, many of us are like, it's this crack in the driveway. Or we even go out there and paint a line because we know that at some point our child is going to go down the driveway a little bit faster than their mastery of their skill. They're going to outkick their coverage, as they say here in Georgia, and they're going to go in hot. And they're going to blow past the boundary. And I don't want the child in traffic when that happens. Yes, I want them to frighten themselves a tiny bit to go, whoa, that was really dangerous. I went too quickly and I didn't stop ahead of time. My planning was off a little bit, but I don't want it to actually be dangerous. So the same thing is true for interactions with our kids and our dogs. And honestly, even with my dogs and guests or my dogs and the neighbor's dog or my dogs and each other. I am a professional dog trainer. I have four very special dogs. I would say four days out of seven, at least one dog is on a tether tied to a piece of furniture with a cushy dog bed and a bony to chew on so that he can't get himself in the middle of the mess that flips him out and makes him anxious. He is supported by being moved out of the primary activity so that he can let it go and relax because he gets pinched by wanting to be close to us, but then that puts him in the middle of everything where his sensitivities get sparked off. He's too deep into the interaction to remember like he could just give everybody more space. Instead, he starts grousing and telling everybody else to give him space. This is an eight-year-old dog. He's well-trained. He's very personable. He's a loving, kind dog. He just sometimes forgets. So the way that I can support him is to go, hey, we're headed into evening. You're probably a little overtired and raw. The pug is going to make you mad. So let me take you over here and set you up to be successful so that you're not in the middle of everything. And then he practices getting it right. Now, if the pug is dumb and goes and jumps on him and he yells at the pug, then the pug kind of had that coming. But I can see him where he's tethered. So there's enough structure that there's that margin for safety and that I can support them all. So if the pug is being a punk, which sometimes he is, I can say, okay, pug, you too are going to get tied to the other end of the piece of furniture. So you stop bothering your brother because it's not funny. I mean, you've probably observed that with your grandkids, one's picking at the other one. And you're like, would you knock it off? Like, yes, he's sensitive, but stop busting his chops about it. Find something else to do. Yes, I remember one time overhearing my daughter say, just leave your brother alone. By the way, he has the right to exist. It's kind of like, yeah, I see that with our dogs, too. That's why I think it's also really important to spend some time just watching your dogs. Learn their signals. Sometimes it's really subtle. 
sometimes your dog may be lying there and he's real happy and the mouth is open and suddenly his mouth closes and he lip licks a little bit and he starts looking out the corner of his eye and he starts slowing down. These are all signals that your dog is saying, things are getting a little uncomfortable for me. And I think that's the point at which you can say, okay, I can see that you're uncomfortable. What is it that's going on around you that's making you uncomfortable that I can support you? So I think it's also incredibly important to become really aware of your dog's indications that things are just not, they're starting to go sideways for them. I've got a blog, it's called uh, Can You Hear Me Now? on some basic dog body language. We'll give you some links for that. But it's really important to understand how they're communicating to you, which is why I know you do and I do too. I spend a lot of time talking to my owners about recognizing dog body language because you're right, one of your dogs is getting upset because the pug's looking at him the wrong way. That's the time to intervene, not the time when the pug actually jumps on the dog and causes a kerfuffle. Right, like once we've thrown punches, it's too late. Now they learned that throwing punches was okay. Right, it's, it's like you want to catch the train before it leaves the station. You can't get on the train if it's already out. Right, or putting the toothpaste back in the tube. And I'm not blaming anybody. Right. These things could have just as easily happened in my household or in Julie's household. I'm purely using these examples to share with families how each of the bites that were reported to me this week happened. And again, none of the bites were serious. Some required some minor medical care. But none of them are serious. These situations are all very likely situations where the dog's not going to be rehomed. They're not going to lose their life. No one was permanently damaged. So first bite was dog was resting. Dad wanted the dog to move and nudged him with his foot and the dog bit him on the foot. There was no damage. So a completely inhibited bite. It wasn't even a tooth bang. It was a level zero or level one bite. That's what we would call that. Where the dog made contact, maybe. Dad wasn't really sure, but there wasn't even a mark. There wasn't even a red mark. In that case, that is a dog giving a correction. That is no different than I am asleep in bed and you come and shove me and I tell you to knock it off. Right, right. And so we will, when we get together, talk about kind of some of the 1950s-esque things of let a sleeping dog lie. If a dog is asleep in the sun, don't bother him. If you need him to move, wake him up other ways. Absolutely. You can wake him up by saying his name. You can wake him up by, I don't know, jiggle the treat container. Most dogs are going to, you know, rise from the dead for that. Oh, I know. My dogs can be like three miles away and I open the treat drawer and they're suddenly right there. I don't know. They had this extra sensory perception as to, and I'm quietly opening the treat drawer and they appear out of nowhere. So, yeah. If I need them to get up and move, all I need to do is walk toward the bathroom. They're all going to follow me. That's right, because we have to all go in there with her because we learned in Dog Scouts, you can never go to the bathroom alone. So I sure as heck have to be mom's companion in the bathroom because it's dangerous, apparently, to go to the bathroom by yourself. Yes, I, I could be sucked out of the commode. And again, it's not blaming dad. I get it. Dad probably had a long day and was stressed, too. We're just going to talk about while I don't love that the dog used his mouth to communicate it, I can understand how from the dog's perspective, this might be, I got kicked while I was sleeping. Now, again, we're not talking about a dad who hauled off and booted the dog. He nudged the dog with his foot to get him to move. We're going to talk about 
kind of cleaner hygiene of communication and how to do that in such a way that the dog is more comfortable. So that was bite number one. Bite number two was dog was asleep on the stairs. Mom reached down to pet the dog. So same dog sleeping on the stairs, not really a place where most humans linger, a place where humans move through. So we could talk about like, do you want the dog sleeping on the stairs and what that might mean to the dog? Like, is the dog like, oh, good. I'm also laying in a hallway so I can watch things and people aren't touching me. Absolutely. My dogs love to lie at the top of the stairs because then I can see down the stairs. I can see the hallway. I can see the bedrooms. You know, it's it's my command post. Right. So we'll pull that apart with that family. But again, like if you're dead asleep, do you want someone tapping you on the forehead? Probably not. Now we had a third bite. This was a bite to the child's face. Child is nine. No adult was in the room. So, you know, I only have the description I have. And according to the child, the child was trying to get the dog to move and the dog jumped up and bit her in the face. Well, we've seen already with this sweet, loving family who loves their dog, like they're good people, modeled for this child has been we push the dog with our foot and that when the dog is asleep, the adults don't hesitate to physically interact with the dog, right? Instead of going, hey, buddy, could you get up and move? We're physically interacting with the dog. And so likely the child did the same thing, reached down for a collar or pushed the dog, and the dog took exception to that. I do not have data on whether or not the dog was asleep at the time. I will ask that question when we get together. But in in we can see in this scenario a perfectly kind dog and wonderful loving owners have run it off in the ditch. We don't bother dogs when they're sleeping. We don't bother dogs when they're eating. We don't bother dogs when they're chewing on a toy or playing with a toy. We don't bother dogs when they're drinking water. There are some basic hygienic rules that your grandmother was raised with that would serve our families today really, really well because the bites wouldn't have occurred. Right. And it's also, too, what you're mentioning, pretty easy alternatives. If you need the dog to move while sleeping, you're right. Say, hey, buddy, come on, or shake the treat jar or something. Allow the dog to wake up. And most of the time, I think people forget that they have a little bit more time than they may at first realize. I need the dog to move. So maybe he's sleeping in front of the bathroom door and I need to get into the bathroom. You probably still have a few seconds to wake him up and ask him to move as opposed to moving him or startling him in his sleep. So I think one of the things that I try to remind my clients of a lot of time is in general, you probably have more time than you think. So take a second or two, assess the situation, take a deep breath and Come up with, a, you know, maybe a, an alternative course of action. I think the other thing is, too, is, is people don't think about, as you were saying, they don't have a plan to start with. So I think what we need to think about is, what is our plan? How am I going to manage it when my dog does this? And it doesn't have to be a complex stratagem with lots of different components to it. It can be just as simple as if the dog is sleeping, I'm going to try and gently wake him up first. And I think having plans like that and practicing them, then they become second nature. And then you are supporting the dog and you're supporting yourself. You're really taking care of yourself because you're not putting yourself in a situation where you are going to end up being traumatized or hurt or upset. So supporting the dog oftentimes is a way to support yourself and your kids. 
so here's the thing in all three of these cases in this one family all three of these incidents happened in like a 10-day period which i would say is typical so again we've just kind of worn each other out and we've worn out everyone's tolerance for one another and in each case in each of the reports they're kind of mad at the dog because after the incident the dog acted as if they did nothing wrong and i'm like right Because from the dog's perspective, the dog was assaulted while sleeping. And when he politely said, hey, please don't do that, things escalated, right? So I'm not defending that the dog used his mouth, but the dog can't hire an attorney. The dog can't open the doorknob and go lay in the backyard in the sun to be left alone. This is a dog who in each case was minding his own business And the humans decided that they wanted or needed something and were not as perhaps as cooperative as like there was another way to do it. I will boldly say things wrong. Like I will have things land in a way that I did not intend. When we're talking about human to human interaction, I can handle someone saying like, hey, you might want to rephrase that because that didn't come across, I think, the way you intended And I will typically go, oh my goodness, you're right. It came out sideways here. Let me clean that up and have better hygiene about how I'm trying to communicate my point, right? In the heat of the moment, it may not come out exactly the way I intended. Well, that same thing happens when we're intraspecies too. Yes. Often these are miscommunications that are escalating to a point that it starts to get dangerous and that we start building a case against the dog. Right. Because one of the things I think happens is when you miscommunicate the dog, this is anthropomorphizing and I understand that, but I kind of feel like, so the dog is sleeping and the guy kicks him or pushes him with his foot and the dog's like, whoa, whoa, wait a minute. Hey. And then the next time somebody is like, petting him or tapping him on the head. He's like, okay, I thought I made it clear the last time when I just hit you with my mouth, it might've been a closed mouth bite, right? That I didn't like it when you disturb me when you're sleeping, but apparently I'm not communicating very effectively. So I'm going to need to escalate this a little bit. So maybe next time I'm going to actually growl and snap and maybe do an open mouth bite with bite inhibition. And then the third time this happens, it's like, I don't know how I'm supposed to communicate this any more clearly to you all, except to get louder about it. And so his behavior got louder and he bit the child on the face. So I think sometimes that we don't realize is that our actions can actually be causing or supporting an escalation in the dog's behavior because the dog sees it as, oh, hang on a second, I'm not communicating clearly, so I have to get louder about it so that maybe you understand how upsetting this is to me. So I think that if we kind of take it from that point of view, this is one of the reasons why punishment doesn't work to curb these kinds of things because dogs see it as like, okay, I growl because I don't really want you near my chewy and then you yell at me and maybe swap me on the behind. So next time when I'm doing my chewy, maybe I have to growl louder and snap and then you'll understand I don't want you near me. So I think that sometimes we inadvertently can escalate the behavior. Right, and it was completely unintentional. And that's the thing, like no one's, being a jerk. Right. I think often my goal is for all of us to be a little bit introspective about, whoa, what happened and how could we do it differently in the future and how can we practice? So in this case, like we're going to have conversations about like, okay, this is a relatively young dog. He's about a year old. You know, what dogs have we had in the past? What did we view? Like, how did we handle 
that dog? And how is this dog really different? Because even if you've got two Labrador retrievers, they're going to be pretty different critters as a general rule. Absolutely. What behaviors are we modeling for the child? Right. And it may be in the end that this dog is not a good fit for this family. This dog is inhibiting his bite, but I can't teach him to never bite. Right. What we can do is come up with how we handle one another. The same way that Julie will occasionally lose her temper with me or I will lose my temper with her and we'll sort it out. Neither of us are punching each other in the nose. So some families are going to say, okay, well, dog trainer, we're not willing to accommodate all of this from a dog. And that is within their rights. I'm not going to judge them about that. I'm just going to say, well, then maintaining this dog in your household is not safe and we need to find another situation for the dog. Because it is totally okay with me for a family to say, well, I'm not willing to manage that way. But that dog, that family member requires that level of management. So if we can't do the things the dog trainer is asking, like that's just not available as a comfortable option, then sometimes that dog will find another home with someone who can accommodate it. Kind of like not everyone's Prince Charming is the same Prince Charming. For as long as a dog is safe, which a dog that's inhibited is safe, then it doesn't mean no dog is a good fit for their family, just maybe not this one. Absolutely. I think often as a society, we get super judgy about, well, that would never happen in my household and my dog would never do that and my child would never do that. And I love y'all enough to say any dog, given the right set of circumstances, is going to hurt someone. There's not some magical, perfect, good dog. Like this dog was considered a good dog until something happened. And then we decided he was a bad dog and he's the same dog. Right. So I think it's important to understand that's not being judgmental on the family. It's just saying, what can you do? Some of the things I ask my owners is, look, what I need you to think about is what can you do and what can't you do? There's no judgment here. This is just more an assessment of what's your reality right now? What's the situation in your life right now? What can you do? What can't you do? What can you afford to do? What can you not afford to do? These kinds of things all need to be weighed into the equation. And the answer may be, yeah, I think we can do that. Didn't realize that that was what was needed. But yeah, I think we can do that. Let's try it. Or it could be like, no, I can't add anything else onto my plate. Even minor supervision just can't happen. So that's not the right dog for you. And I think that it's hard for people not to see that as a failure. And that's not the way I see it at all. In fact, I see it more as a success when you can be honest about what you can and cannot do, what you can and cannot expect from this dog, and whether those two things are mutually inclusive. If they're not, then let's find a dog that is compatible with your lifestyle and what you can do. And I think that it's really important for people to understand that there's no such thing as perfection. There's no perfect dog. There's no perfect lifestyle. There's no perfect family. There's just something that works better. And this, if it's not working, then let's find a way to either make it work better or find a dog that works better. And we're all going to get distracted and we're all going to have things to do right? We're all going to get caught up in the moment or be busy doing something or a glass breaks in the kitchen. So I don't expect perfection of anybody, especially myself, because I am boldly imperfect. But that means that the strategies that I have to have in place allow for that bold imperfection. So 
For example, if house guests are here, our dogs are either crated or behind a gate in another section of the house. If those guests are comfortable with dogs, if I'm comfortable with how those guests are going to interact with my dogs, and if my dogs are comfortable, then one at a time, individual dogs come out and get to have greater interaction with those guests. Sometimes all of the dogs can be out. Often one or two dogs at a time can be out. And to be clear, it does matter to me whether or not the guest wants interaction, but just because a guest wants interaction does not mean that my dog gets access to that guest because some of my dogs are not stable enough for every guest. It would just be too stressful for me, for them, for the guest. And the cost of it going badly is too high, frankly. It's it's too high to burden to bear. So my dogs are completely comfortable being behind a gate where they can see what's going on, but we don't have the risk of someone crowding them accidentally or stepping on a tail or upsetting a stressed dog. And just like everyone else, I have had a boundary and management in place. And then the person does something that maybe I didn't anticipate. And I'm like, whoa, I need to change my setup. And I will literally interrupt what we're doing, move the boundary back, change how I'm managing the dogs, and then go at it again because it was too close to the edge. I don't want to wait for a really big negative experience. So for example, if my highly sensitive dog or my deaf dog are asleep in a high traffic area, I have ways to wake those dogs and move them so that they can rest somewhere else and there's less of a chance of a miscommunication of someone startling them or worrying them. Right. I love the idea of of having more than one battle plan because one of the things that when I'm working with owners and we're talking about getting their dogs to interact with them and to focus on them, I try to give them a lot of different ways in which their dog will disengage from a distraction and re-engage with them because maybe target won't work this time, but something else will. And I think the same thing applies here. You can have a strategy for how to manage your dogs, but if the strategy is not working, I remember one time, Tina, I was out with a client and we were working with a dog and this dog had been pretty sensitive to, you know, just distractions and stuff. We were doing really well. We had it in downtown Granville and we'd been to downtown Granville several times in the lesser trafficked area, but the dog was feeling real confident. And so that day we were in a little more highly trafficked area. It wasn't super high traffic, but the dog was doing really well. We stopped. The dog was facing the woman and I, and she and I were talking for a minute because I was saying, look, this went really well. I think the strategy here, did you see what happened here and how you managed it? That was really great. When a man ran up from behind us, stepped between us, grabbed the dog by the face and said, hi, schmoozy face, and ran off. And the dog was totally traumatized. We were totally traumatized by it. So I think sometimes you need to understand that stuff can happen even when you least suspect it, but to have another plan. So what we did, what I did immediately was I turned to the dog who was looking at me and just started feeding chicken, just started feeding chicken, saying, hey, got it. That guy was a really, he was a total idiot. Here, have as much chicken as you need. And I could watch the dog start to calm down. But I think that if you have a strategy, because people will do things, you think dogs can be unpredictable. People can be just as unpredictable and they can do things like step through the gate or open the gate and let the dogs out. When I have said, leave the dogs on that side of the gate or open the door and let them out the front door when I haven't had a chance to put the gate up at the front. So you need to have more than one strategy so that you don't panic. So that if, if something does go sideways, you're like, okay, fine. 
we'll do plan B, maybe plan C. Maybe we're down to plan M by the time you're, and then the plan N is you never come to my house again. Well, so yeah, so sometimes it's like, I'm going to go meet you at the park instead. But one of the things I would say, like, even with my own kids, if I saw that one of my children was having a really bad day or was overtired or was quarrelsome or was just sad that day, right? As a foster parent, sometimes my kiddos were just sad. There were just some days that were harder. Well, my dogs at that time were pretty sensitive kiddos. They wanted to be in the middle of that, but that might not feel safe for that child. They might not need more crowding, even by a crowd of dogs who loved them. So there's a little bit of monitoring how I need to show up as a superhero to my kid and my dog in any given moment. And understanding that that might mean that I have a glass of wine after everyone's gone to bed, or that I might need to go to the grocery store by myself, or that I might need to take the dog in the bedroom and cuddle them for a little while, arguably a slight bit forcibly, (laughs) without my children observing (laughs) it, right? Because I need some filling up. One thing that parenting foster children made me better at as a human was going, you know what, I'm overwhelmed and I need to put dogs in crates or some other management strategy to just let me breathe for five minutes. My paternal grandfather used to do this thing with us that until I was an adult, I didn't realize how brilliant it was. He had tons of leftover white paint that he would water down and he had these old awful paintbrushes that were worn out and, you know, looked more like a toothbrush than a paintbrush anymore. And when myself and my siblings, he needed us out of his hair, he would water down some white paint and send us to go paint the rocks that lined the driveway. We thought, like, we got to do something that, like, you never get to do. Like, are you kidding? I'm a kid and I get to have a paintbrush and paint unsupervised? Are you kidding me? Right? Like, this is exciting. But we felt like we were helping grandpa, it never occurred to me until I was an adult, oh, that was grandpa getting us out of his hair, probably because we were driving him a little bit, like there was too much jabber from the little girls. So grandpa just needed 20 minutes, and he knew that sending us to paint the rocks would take us 20 minutes, and he could get a break and do whatever it is he needed to do. So ideally never that we're waiting until things are in a crisis, that I'm saying, oh, yeah, the dog can't play right now. He he played really hard earlier in the day and he just needs to rest now. Right, right. Because we want to avoid reactivity. We want to avoid the panic moments. What I'd rather do is see you be proactive and active saying, okay, I know that we went for a, a, you know, a two mile run in the morning and your dog and the dog's really tired. The grandkids are coming over this afternoon. Zeus is going to go in my office. That's being proactive because I'm not waiting for the reaction of a super tired dog with a child who missed their nap. I don't need that sort of an interaction. So I, I love the fact that you're talking about having a plan and being proactive so that you are not waiting for something to go amiss. Instead, you're preventing anything from going amiss. It may not have gone amiss, but now you're sure that it's not going to because you've been proactively taking care of them and you. So those are great suggestions and I love the rock painting thing that was really terrific that's yeah no like 
if I lived closer to my grandkids, they would have painted some rocks. So one of the things that I would say is I had the opportunity as a foster parent to take some parenting courses where they're like, what are you going to do when X, Y, Z happens? We were taught to have a plan, like plan dinner a week out, have a plan, knowing that maybe one day you're going to be too tired or the kids are going to be sideways and you're going to order pizza anyway, but still have a plan. I endeavored to do the same thing with the dogs. And again, my plan's always flexible, but I have a plan. And if I'm feeling overwhelmed, the easy answer is to manage the dogs and give the kids something super fun to do that they don't normally get access to, to buy me three minutes of breathing exercise so that I can settle a little bit. I think what I'm seeing lots of families do now is they want to constantly include the kids and the dog together. They leave the room to go switch laundry and then things happen and we don't know what happened. And now we have a child who's injured or scared of a family member. We have a dog who had a really negative experience and felt like he needed to defend himself from a family who loves him. It's a big mess to try to fix that. And I can see beautifully and kindly both sides of that negative interaction, that group of negative interactions, and have grace and love for both of them. Because it's easy to have happen. So we'll be talking a lot about, okay, where's the dog going to be when you can't supervise? When you can't provide that advocacy, where's the dog going to be? Because lots of families, I think, just think having the dog involved in everything all the time is good. We'll somehow make things right for them. Yes, we'll make it good and we'll make the dog tolerant of all the things that my kids do. If he sees it and we're always involved with it, it becomes normal. Yeah, but you know, not necessarily, especially if the dog has any kind of sensitivity. But I think that what we talked about is a lot of good things. So if there were three things that you wanted to say to parents to take away from this, what would that be, Tina? First is if you don't have the bandwidth, if you don't have the space to provide support for what's going on, manage the dog. Not because your world is filled with, you know, tons of conflict and drama, just so that it doesn't get there. If your dog is laying in their crate sleeping, there can't be a conflict. Right. So the first one is if you are feeling overwhelmed and you don't manage the dog. What's the second thing? The second thing is set aside 15 minutes in the next week to come up with a variety of things that you can give the dog to do or you can give your children to do that gets them separate from one another, but still happy and content. And I would tell you to write that down and put the list on the refrigerator. On the refrigerator or inside your cabinet door so that so that you don't have to think. Right. You can just open the cabinet door and refer to the list. Absolutely. Yes. Okay. And number three, what's your third one? Number three, buy and read in the bathroom, Colleen Pilar's Living with With Kids kids and and Dogs. dogs. Absolutely. I've given away so many copies of that book. I just keep handing it to people. (laughs) I do too. It is the best. Because I'm like, you need this even if you don't. Like, if you're a grandparent, you need this. If you're an aunt or uncle, you need this. If you have a dog, you need this. If you have kids, you need this even if you don't have a dog. 
because your children are going to come in contact with other people's dogs. Kids and dogs is really hard. It's just as hard as you think it is. That's right. And the beauty of Colleen's book is that I, I was I was with Colleen. Uh, I was working with her at the time that she was writing it. And she wrote the book because she was so frustrated with the fact that there were so many parenting books saying, keep the dog under supervision at all times. Or dog training books, keep the kids under supervision at all times. She's I can't do that. Right. So she's lived the life. She had three boys and a dog and two cats. She lived the life. And so she really put into practice all these things in a very practical way. And it's a really well organized book. And she also she talked to a lot of people like at the time her kids were not teenagers, but mine were. So one of the things she and I had a long talk about was the teenage years. And what was I expecting of my kids? And what did I not expect? And she was very thoughtful, I think, in, in her research and how she put this book together. So I can't recommend it highly enough. So one of the best hints I'll give you about using that book, though, families, is put it literally wherever you sit on the toilet. And at the end of each chapter is words for the weary. Flip to those words of the weary for whatever developmental stage your kiddos are in. And if it doesn't speak to your situation, don't read that chapter. Go to a chapter that does. Save yourself first. Like this is not we're giving you a reading assignment. This is, hey, if you flip it open and like the I Ching, it speaks to your situation, read that chapter. Because you're not going to be left alone in the bathroom very long, and your time is really important. So save you first so that you can be a superhero for the rest of the family. You know, it reminds me of when you're on the airplane, and they always say, put your oxygen mask on first before you help somebody else. Colleen's book's kind of the same way. Read the chapter that speaks to you. Get the information that you need then go out and conquer the world. So thank you very much, Tina. I think that was a, a, a good episode today. We hope we provided you with some information that will be valuable. And we'll see you all next time on Your Family Dog. Thanks for listening to Your Family Dog. Got questions? Interesting ideas? Visit www.yourfamilydogpodcast.com to share your thoughts.